Hey, this is Greg Kim. But don't be in jeopardy. Continue to listen to the Dr. Sky Show. It's good for your health. And welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the show that you tell us you like so much, the Dr. Sky Show, with great guests from the realms of astronomy, space, aviation, and weather, with celebrity and musical guests in the mix. And boy, do we have a great guest for you, ladies and gentlemen. Greg Kinn, a legend in rock and roll, a radio personality, and a novelist, will be joining us for our special edition of the Dr. Sky Show today. But a little bit about our special guest, Greg Kinn, before we talk to the man. NBC called Greg Kinn rock's true renaissance man. His career stretches from the dawn of punk and indie rock to the discos of the 80s to the glory days of MTV. And as a pioneer with the legendary Berserkly Records, he helped write the book on revolutionary West Coast rock and roll. He's toured the world, had hit records, appeared on Saturday Night Live, an American bandstand, opened for the iconic Rolling Stones, jammed with Bruce Springsteen, won the ASCAP and Mitem Awards for his worldwide number one hit Jeopardy and the breakup song. And ladies and gentlemen, none other than Greg Kinn himself here on the Dr. Sky Show. Thank you so much, Greg, for talking with us about your career and the love of music. How are you? I'm, I'm great, and I hope I can live up to that introduction. That was a beauty. Hey, thank you, brother. And it's amazing <laughs> to have I love the music because I'm serious. I was back in New York in the 80s, and, you know, we've had some of the MTV uh, VJs here. Oh, Nina, sure. Nina Blackwood on here reminiscing, of course, as they still do, right, on uh, Sirius XM every day. They, they, they're, yep, they're all alive and well on uh, Sirius XM. Nice to see them, uh, you know, soldiering on. But I remember those uh, salad days of MTV, you know, the first one or two years were great because uh, we had come out with, you know, there was a time when all videos were like fake live videos, you know? Right. And then there was there was a time when there were a lot of, uh, you know, like w- women in lingerie running down alleys, okay? That was sure. big. Mm-hmm. But right. uh, we were the first actual concept video, and, it, it, and that's why uh, MTV played it so much, because it was the only different thing they could play. So they played it every hour. It was a huge hit. Wow. Yeah, it's amazing stuff to talk about here. I mean, how, how that whole phenomenon just grew. And, you know, I think about it like you, and you were in it. I, I watched it, and I couldn't get away from the television then, because what, Greg? That was like the whole unique thing. It was the, it was the thing, I guess, in the 80s, where they combined yeah. the best of music, and now what? The new medium for video in those days. That was just outstanding. It's amazing. Well, you know, before that, I, I, I guess we're going to be dating ourselves uh, right here for a minute. <laughs> right. But, you know, there was a time, there was, there was a time when there was no rock and roll on television at all. Yes. And uh, it was only that you saw it on Sunday night, maybe, say, on uh, Ed Sullivan, you know, or a variety show like the Smothers Brothers show or something like that. Otherwise, you wouldn't see rock and roll all week. You had to wait till Sunday night when you knew the kinks were going to be on Ed Sullivan. Yeah. So you know, it, it was such a uh, it was a, such a cultural desert that when MTV hit, it was uh, it was a huge impact. Yes, it is, and yes, it was. And you know, talking about this, I got to go back to what you mentioned about Ed Sullivan. That show. I'm 61 years young. 
And I remember watching with my parents on our black and white Zenith TV. Who, who can't, you know, who can not forget that? But what's interesting, you talk about the fascination and the influence the Beatles had, not only on you, but uh, on so many people. Talk about that importance of the Beatles to you there, Greg. Interesting. Well, everybody that I know, and I, you know, as a as a radio guy for eighteen years, I did a lot of uh, interviews, and you know, uh, one thing that ran through the thread of the interviews what what was the impetus that mo- made most of these guys want to be musicians in the first place? You could almost chart it. Uh, everybody in my generation points to one day, and that was the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe it was like what 1963. Yes, and remember the 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 the, the, con- the country was we you know reverberating from the assassination of Kennedy, and that had happened I guess what in January, mm-hmm. uh, and then uh, a few months later the Beatles hit, and it was like the end of our national mourning. And suddenly it was okay to smile again. And the Beatles, of course, were so delightful. And they made everybody sit up and take notice. And I remember exactly what you were, you know, talking about being uh, in the in the living room, watching the big color TV. You know, in those days, TVs were, were furniture. It was a big old cabinet <laughs> model. And uh, everybody would get together and watch, because it was only like two or three channels anyway. Yeah. You had to watch uh, uh, Ed Sullivan. I remember my, my mom, my dad, my sister, sure. everybody was... Look at their hair. Look at this. Look at that. And I thought, you know, right then and there, when I saw them and the, the, they were showing the, the girls screaming, I said, you know, that's what I want to do. <laughs> Absolutely, Greg. It's amazing. And I, I'll take it a step further. When we were kids, I don't know about you, we'd take some of those old consoles where they took the tubes out of them, and we wanted to perform, you know, either do a newscast or pretend we were musicians. So what would we do? We would stick our heads through there. Like we were on television. <laughs> we yeah. had fun. Yeah, we had fun in those days. But the point oh is yeah, that, you know it's yeah. it's it's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> I, I was talking about. I've been kind of making notes for a possible autobiography, maybe next year. Yeah, one of the things that I talk about. You know, I spent uh, many years in radio, getting up at four a.m., which, mm. as you know, precludes you having a life, <laughs> and. Uh, I, you know, I, I remember how when I was a kid, I was maybe 12 or 13 years old. My cousin was about the same age. And uh, we got, well, for Christmas, I got one of these little Wallen sack tape recorders. I remember. Three inch, <laughs> yeah, three inch uh, reels. And they were real pieces of junk. But they worked, and that was like, you know, state-of-the-art. And and we used to make fake radio shows and, you know, funny uh, interviews and just goofy stuff. Little did I know that, you know, much later in life, I'd be doing that for real. Uh, I get paid for it, so it's crazy. It is. Folks, if you're just joining us, the Dr. Sky Show goes to great music legend, American rock musician, radio personality, and novelist Greg Ken. The Greg Kin Band, so much to talk about in such a short amount of time here, Greg. Again, thank many thanks for being part of our radio show. But I want to go back to something. Back in New York, I was standing on a train platform with an uncle of mine back in August of 65 when the Beatles were playing at Chase Stadium. Unbeknownst to me, I didn't really know who they were. 
But you're so right. I saw girls fainting. I saw people screaming. And I saw from my position there across the road or whatever, amazing thousands and thousands of people, flashbulbs going off. And somebody sticks in my mind today. We've had him here as a guest, Cousin Bruce Morrow, Cousin Brucey. He uh, talks so much about the Beatles and how they influence music, as you've just said. So putting that behind us, that's just such an amazing change of, of venue here. I mean, how would you describe the Beatles? Were they simply rock? Were they a combination of uh, different types of music? Describe them in conclusion on the Beatles. You know, that's a very that's a very good question because mm-hmm. uh, obviously they were rock and roll, mm-hmm. and obviously they were playing American rock and roll, a la Chuck Berry, Carl Perkins, sure. etc. Uh, and then selling it back to us. <laughs> we were the originators over here with the, in the states. But that was that was only uh, the the first layer. As you kept, as you you know dug down deep, you found out that they were really in their souls great songwriters struggling to come out. Boy, those first well, not even the first. The entire songwriting career was uh, you know people say how what, what's the greatest album of all, of all time. You know, and you could probably make a case for, I don't know, Dark Side of the Moon or sure. Born to Run or, you know, there there are like a handful of albums that always come up, but invariably one of them is Sgt. Pepper. You and when you think about it, Sgt. Pepper was the apex of what the Beatles were doing. The first two songs that they recorded for Sgt. Pepper were Strawberry Fields, and Penny Lane, which were taken off the album, because in those days, they didn't put singles on the album. I don't know. God knows why. Yeah. Uh, they took them off. So you can you imagine that album with how brilliant it already was with the inclusion of uh, Fra- Strawberry Fields Forever and Penny Lane? Wow, it's unbelievable. Be when you look at it as, a, as songwriters, the guys were... Uh, you know they were it was it was they were leaps and bounds of uh, ahead of everyone else and you know i came up as a songwriter i was a folky to begin with uh, i remember buying the free wheel and bob dylan album i guess that was like when it came out in 63 this yeah. was pre beatles my cousin had a banjo and he and i had a little folk group we were called the voyagers i remember this and we used to go down to the CYO Church Coffee House on Sunday nights, and we would uh, sign up for the Hootenanny, where everybody could get up and do 15 minutes. You know, there was just a bunch of people doing Cotton Fields and uh, mm-hmm. Puff the Magic Dragon and all that. We, but me and my cousin went back week after week, and we got really good. And a, a year later, we were, we were, uh, we were formidable. And I remember the the day that I really became part of the music business. Uh, there was a I grew up in Baltimore, which mm-hmm. was a wonderful place to grow up in the fifties and the sixties. Uh, yeah. It was like happy days, you know. We had a Fonz, we had a Potsy, we oh, had, cool. you know. And um, when I was, God, I must have been thirteen. I already had a guitar because I said to my my cousin had a banjo, and I. Somehow I got a guitar and, and and I learned the first three chords and and he and I were playing like Tom Dooley at the Hootenanny. Uh, and my mom had 
given me a, a little Wallen sack tape recorder. Yes. And uh, I would take it into her shower stall and record. It was great acoustics in there. It's kind of like an echo chamber. So I bought the guitar in there, brought the Wallen sack in there, and I caught a couple of demos in the shower stall. <laughs> and lo and behold, I mean, you know, as last thing in the world that I expected, my mom, unbeknownst to me, entered that tape in the WCAO talent contest. It was the big top 40 station back in the day in Baltimore, and they were having a talent citywide talent search. And one of the categories was male uh, songwriter, I think. Yes. And uh, I won. I won the free... I can't awesome. imagine... <laughs> it, it, was, it was horrible. The song that I recorded, I, I still remember it to this day. It was awful. And it was, it was just, I couldn't believe that I won. And I won three things that affected my life forever. Mm-hmm. One of them was I got an electric guitar, a Vox teardrop phantom guitar, oh, cool. which I loved. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was to shape my life. And I, I, I got an electric typewriter. Uh, that was back before uh, computers, an electric <laughs> typewriter. Yeah. And I started really writing in earnest uh, w- once I got that. And I got a stack of records, which I would wind up playing on the radio. I was on the campus radio station at the local college there. Mm-hmm. So there you go. You, you win a contest that you never was intended to be in, and it shapes your life. And there, there it is. That's amazing, Greg. You know, I was going to want to get into your life here as we have legendary rock performer and, like I mentioned before, already, radio personality and novelist Greg Kinn, the Greg Kinn Band, of course. He's spending time with us on the Dr. Sky Show. So after this, you moved to California, and let's talk about, this is interesting, because if people love to learn about you know record labels in those days, you get this affili- affiliation with Berserkly Records. Talk about that. That's awesome. I mean, this is a great story. Uh, well, you know, there were a group of artists, and we were actually, I was living in the Berserkly house, which is the corner of Spruce and Eunice in darkest, deepest Berkeley. Uh, and, uh, you know, I had come to town, and I was crashing on the floor up there. And this was like our kind of like headquarters house. Jonathan Richmond was living on the second floor. Uh, two or three of the guys in Earthquake, John Dukas was living there. Uh, you know, Matthew Kaufman was living there. And it was a real hotbed of creativity, especially because Jonathan was there. And he really gave us a lot of, uh, a little kind of a kick in the, in the butt. But um, I started off, when I first came to Berkeley, I didn't have any money. I didn't have a job, so I was busking. Mm. I was busking on Telegraph Avenue. With uh, with Robbie Dunbar, the lead guitar player from uh, from Earthquake, and he had a little pig nose amp, and I had a twelve string guitar. We went out there busking on the corner or on on the steps of Sproul Plaza in Cal Berkeley, mm-hmm. and we used to do pretty good. Man, we get to get like forty, fifty bucks a day. That's great busking, you know. Which you know, back in those days, you could live on. You sure could. And uh, then one day, a guy that owned a club that I knew, uh, his name was Malcolm, he, played, he had a place called the Long Branch Saloon, 
And Eddie Money, who was another Berkeley boy, was the house band there, and they were moving up. And and now Bill Graham was going to be Eddie's uh, Eddie's manager, and, uh, and so they were leaving. Them. And Malcolm goes, "Geez, really, it's too bad you don't have a band because I need a house band." You know, now Eddie's leaving. I go, "Oh, I lied." I said, "Oh, hey, I got a I got a band, man." Yeah. You, you didn't know that? I got a band, and we're really good. Of course, I had no idea. I was lying through my teeth. I won, and I, you know, I really had a bass player. That's Steve Wright, who was my partner from day one. Uh, that's what we had. That was me and Stevie. And we put a band together in one week with Larry. He goes, hey, my brother-in-law plays drums. Let's have Larry come and play drums. And a guy that was in a band that they were in in high school playing guitar. So we put that first Greg Kin band together, uh, and that band stayed together for 18 years and made 18 albums and a whole bunch of hits. So wow. go figure. That's rock and roll. You got it. it because planned, right. you know? There's no plan. I mean, you don't have an official business plan. This happens because it happens. And it happens. Yeah, I and you know, our other thing, this is something, too, that I'd like to impart to our to our young listeners here, Please. people that are starting out in the music biz, mm-hmm. but you don't start this thing out to be famous. There you go. You do it because you love it. It's it's a part of your life. It's something that you would do whether you were going to get paid or not. And usually you didn't anyway in the beginning way. Uh, and, you know, you re- rehearse in the garage because it's in your blood and it's the passion. And then maybe, just maybe, you'll be good enough so that you'll be able to actually, you know, professionally play professionally. But we were we were a great scene in Berkeley in I think that was like 1976, mm-hmm. and there were lots of clubs. There was the Long Branch Saloon at Keystone Berkeley, and uh, there were at least three or four clubs there, and, and we played all the time. Uh, at that initial lie went a long way, man. We used to play like every maybe three, four times a week. Well, this is great because talking about rock, rock and roll, the album. We're talking about continued conspiracy, contagious, and citizen kin. I mean, this is where the velocity really picks up with you and and the band. Of course, talk about that particular time and leading up to Jeopardy. I mean, this is one that yeah. nobody. Oh yeah, you know, I was. I was a, I was a, if people say, how do you, what, what adjective would you describe your career? And basically I would say I was lucky. I was really lucky. I came up with the right song at the right time. I had fallen in with the right guys. And we, you know, all those people that I mentioned a few minutes ago, Jonathan Richmond and the Modern Lovers and Earthquake and the Rubenews and the Greg Kin Band, we couldn't get uh, we couldn't get um, record contracts. Um, Earthquake had made two albums for A and M. I had a publishing deal for A and M, but never went anywhere. And uh, we wound up back in Berkeley again. Uh, and the reason that we had enough we had enough money to make like a sampler album. And uh, Matt Kaufman, who was the uh, manager of the whole thing. He said, uh, let's just make like a compilation and we'll call it Berserkly Chart Busters. 
Volume one, which I thought was very uh, optimistic. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so we made that uh, for, God, we did it after hours at Wally Hyder's studio. And we, you know, like for super cheap, I think we did the whole album for less than 10 grand. Amazing. Uh, including the cover and everything else. And that we started distributing through Berserkly Records. Uh, through the back of a Volkswagen van, uh, van. and uh, we just, you know, played around in Berkeley, and we sold our records, and then we got picked up by Play- Playboy Records of all the weirdest thing. Yeah. yeah, Hugh Hefner uh, was at the time just started Playboy Records for, and he had his girlfriend Barbie Benton yeah. as the star, and his. Uh, business advisor said, "Hey, you got to, you know, you got to sign some actual acts so that this doesn't look like a, it's a one man label. You know, you got to go out and win. so he runs right into Berserkly uh, uh, up in Brown, like, and we got four bands and we're ready to go. We got the we got the sampler cut and everybody's loving it. Mm-hmm. And we were the critic starling, so boom, he." he uh, we 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 signed with Playboy, and we made had enough money to make my first album, Earthquake, The Modern Lovers, and The Rubidoux. And then from that from that point on, it, you know, the sky was the limit because every single album that we made had a different distributor. We started with Playboy, then we went to CBS, then we went to uh, Janus. Then we went to GRT, then we went to WEA, then we went to Asylum, then we went to... And we we ended up, uh, I think we worked our way through the entire industry. And well, we wound up uh, on EMI around the time of the Sex Pistols. So that was kind of a... It was an interesting ride. Yes. And I will say this, I was very lucky to be at the right place at the right time. But then again... We were pure of heart, and that's I think that had, that was more of a of a factor than anything else. The fact that we weren't doing this like let's make a hit record, let's be you know let's get uh, you know let's get on TV and stuff like that. No, we were just a band that was creative, having a lot of fun playing every weekend, and we started writing songs and in the studio, and we always thought that we were making art. I mean, we always thought we were in the art business. We had no idea that we were in the commercial music business until much later. Yeah, I guess it takes time to figure that out. But what's it like to open for the Rolling Stones? I mean, this is not something anybody can put on their resume. I mean, where were you? Oh, uh, yeah. How was that? I mean, to describe that briefly. Uh, it was, well, first of all, it's something that you'll never forget. Mm-hmm. You know, I haven't, I don't get, I don't get nervous. I don't get stage fright. Uh, going all the way back to when we used to play those Hootenannies at the CYO, I, my, my cousin got, really, just got tongue-tied. And he, he get, I didn't have that problem. I was always glib and, uh, you know, I didn't really did give a shit. So I just mm-hmm. kind of went, went my way. And, uh, you know, it was, it, it was good because in the end, uh, we were doing things for the right reasons. You know, we weren't just doing it to, to make money. 
I feel today, and that's one of my pet peeves about the music business, is bands exist just to make money, just to be successful. Exactly. And back in the old days, we had, we loved the music. And I don't remember, I remember uh, how important music was to us. You know, I worked uh, for a while at Rather Ripped Records, one of the great record stores of all time in Berkeley, California, when I when I first came out here. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you know, this, is, this place was open until like 3 in the morning, and we were smoking dope in there and blasting <laughs> music and just having a ball. We didn't hardly sell too many records, but we had a great time. <laughs> but yeah. those, in those days, the music was everything. Mm-hmm. You know, like, like if a new, mm-hmm. I don't know, if a new Bowie album came out, you had to go get it right there and then. Yeah. The fact that I worked in a record store really helped. Yeah. But remember how important things, like if there was a new Beatles album or a new Stones album mm-hmm. or a new Dylan album, you just went out and got it. You know, you, you didn't think about it. And it was very... Uh, well, what's what's the adjective I'm looking for? It was just it was now it was very eclectic. It was in the it was in the moment, and I do remember how I treasured my records. You know, records also were very fragile. They would warp if you left yeah. them in a hot car. They'd warp or they'd get scratched or your little your especially here in especially here in Phoenix. Them. Yeah, all my records you had, had to, to be in the refrigerator. You, almost. you had to be completely dedicated to the music. Yeah. You know, you had to treat the records with respect, and it was the same thing with the music. I mean, well, when we came up with a new song, which was every week, by the way, back in the old days, mm-hmm. when we were uh, basically rehearsing every day, and we would come up with a song a week, and then at Saturday night at the gig that night, we would debut the song. And that one that happened for years. We just kept doing it and doing it. It was so much fun. It's a big passion. Greg Ken, ladies and gentlemen, he's our special guest. Just a few more minutes with him and changing the the venue here. Obviously, you're also an on-air personality. KUFX FM 98.5, the Fox. There, of course, spending so much time being on air, kind of a different type of a role and responsibility. And then another interesting thing that many people may not really know about Greg Ken you have this interesting and fascinating literary career beginning in 1996. You're a novelist. Yes. Describe this. Now, that's really cool stuff. Describe this to the audience. Well, you know, I'd always been a writer. And if you'll remember correctly, my early story about my mom and the, the contest on the radio station, W-C-A-O, when I got that right? electric typewriter, I actually started using it. That's cool. You know, it was fun. Um, and I'd start writing these really stupid stories. You know, they were... Uh, here's another thing. You know, this, we're, we're fraught with uh, lots, of these, uh, lots of these tips for young musicians. Here's another one. Mm-hmm. Uh, write it, even if it sucks. Because, like, my first couple of novels that I wrote were terrible. They were horrible. <laughs> and I sent them to literary agents, and they'd send it back with ha-ha-ha written all over it. <laughs> oh, you know, it was horrible. Yeah. It wasn't, it took me, but you know, and I'd like to point out that it's a craft. Writing writing novels is a craft, just like 
playing the guitar or writing songs or making records or whatever. It's a craft. And if you work on it, you can learn it. Uh, and you get better as time goes by. Um, for instance, the, our new album that just came out, um, Rekindled. Uh, Rekindled. <laughs> Why did I have a, a brain fart right there? <laughs> I have no Rekindled. idea. Rekindled. <laughs> yeah, as in I hope this album rekindles my career. There you go. But you know that that's my first original studio album in over 21 years. You know, that's funny because I mean, we're talking think about that. That's right, why most people already, you know, they can retire in that time. Right, but we're speaking to you now. If I'm correct, is this right, Greg? You're at the studio right now as we're doing this interview. Am I right? Yes, we are. We're all working on songs for the next album. That's awesome. In fact, uh, they're they're in there right now. I'm in I'm in the waiting room with the with the doors closed, but you can hear the drums in the in the background there. See a passion. You know, music. drummers that take the, they get into the studio. You know, like what time is it? One thirty, two o'clock. Right. You know, they get into the studio at ten a.m. to set their drums up, and they go boom, boom, bang, bang until like two o'clock. So you got to get it right. <laughs> yeah, you got to get it right. And uh, God bless them. Hey, listen, I love it, and I, I want everybody to be uh, happy with their sounds. You know, this new Greg Kinn band, uh, which I wanted to mention, Please. because my son, this is the best thing about when you talk to me. Yeah, I got a lot, I got so many aspects to my career, but this is one I'm really proud about. My son who was a jazz guitar major uh, from Berkeley School of Music in Boston and also went to uh, Cal Arts in Valencia. Mm -hmm. Jazz guitar major, former student of Joe Satriani when Joe was in the band. Uh, is a He's a virtuoso guitar player. Oh, and now, great. just the fact that I'm out there with my son, my next of kin, I look over and I can't help but smile. I'm really, I'm really proud because he's a great guitar player. He gets standing ovations every night. No, that's great. And, he's uh, very proud of that. And yeah. no pun, no pun intended when you say next of kin. There you go. <laughs> that's right. You know, and I think it's something that it's it's my, it's part of my legacy. Right. And I, I'll tell you another. I'll tell you another one. Uh, this is this is even more shocking. I have two grandsons. Five and eight right now. Congratulations. And they're already playing instruments. I got them playing. I got them a, a set of drums. I got them a guitar. I got them a bass. I got them a keyboard. They're in their music in room uh, all the time, bashing away and, and making... They they pretend songs. They make up songs like they're pretending. And uh, when they go see Uncle Rye and... They call me Uncle Grandpa. <laughs> Uncle Grandpa and Uncle Rye's uh, band is playing the gig. They get all excited. In fact, their favorite song on the new album is Pink Flamingos, which this is also my favorite. The second track. But here we album. are. It's yeah. 21 years later, and finally I had the impetus to go back in there. You know what happened was I was doing the radio thing. And as you know, when you get up at 4 a.m., you don't really have a life. You don't. You're going to bed at like 9, you know, 9.30. Uh, you don't have time to write. You don't have time to work on songs. You never... And when the weekend rolls around, you don't want to go in the studio. You just want to sleep. You got that so, right. 
for 18 years, that's what I did. And then finally, they let me go at Day Fox uh, a couple of years ago, and it was like, it was very liberating because I suddenly I had, I wrote two novels in about a year and a half. I wrote wrote and produced this, uh, this CD, uh, Rekindled, and we're already working on the next one, and I'm also working on the next the next novel. And I, I you know, I, I wanted to give you a little idea of what the novels were like because they're very different. You know, I don't think there's any other books that are like this out there. But when I was uh, doing radio, uh, and of course I love the Beatles, and, and as part of my job, I got to interview Ringo Starr and That's Paul great. McCartney. That's and incredible. Pete Best, as a matter of fact, who was very informative. And I got to talk to Paul, and I, and I asked them all the same question. Where did the Beatles get their music? Yeah. They couldn't go down to a, you know, they couldn't go down and buy Twist and Shout by the Isley Brothers. It wasn't available, even at an import store, if there had been such a thing. That's true. But And, and I, I asked uh, Paul the same thing, and they both said the same thing. We got them from Merchant Marines, returning from the States. That's amazing. That is amazing. Isn't that that amazing? I never would have thought of that. Yes, and how many people they knew and how sociable they were, uh, because all the bands had the same repertoire, and if the Beatles wanted to rise above, they needed more songs, more and more songs, especially when they went to Germany in the early days. They went to Hamburg. They needed five sets of material yes. every night. That's a that's a lot of songs. So sure. they needed some place to get the the music. So that gave me the idea for the character Dustbin Bob. Dustbin Bob, by the way, Dustbin is what they call a garbage can in in England. Mm-hmm. So it's garbage can Bob basically. That's and hilarious. he's a guy. He's a secondhand dealer, and he's got a little booth. Uh, at the flea market, and he's selling the records. You know the the, the <laughs> records that are that he's getting from the Merchant Marines because he's trading them all kinds of stuff and getting the records. So sure. one day the Beatles come along and they discover this this treasure trove of forty fives, and they they immediately become really good friends, best friends with Dustin Bob, and Dustin Bob furnishes them. With you know all of the year, and, and that's all part of the story. How they came to do you know uh, Twist and Shout, Money by Barrett Strong, and Chains, and that is an amazing Anna, story. And, boy, there's Greg. so many great covers. Yeah. That's incredible. So but that's you know, how it, yeah, we're probably going to have to run on this edition here as the clock runs out. But never uh, a chance here. Hopefully, we would do this again, and I'd like to do this with you in a future edition too. Yeah, we never, talk, uh, we never got to talk. We never got to talk to heavenly bodies and the well, uh, that, the nature of the universe. How about we have a guarantee from Greg Kin that we'll do that again? How about that, Greg? Would that be okay by you? I I, I guarantee it. I'm, <laughs> right. I was looking forward to our discussion, yep. and I'm still looking forward to more because this was less of an interview and more just you know two guys talking. Well, that's exactly what it should be. And, you know, like I like to try to say, and I'm sure you would agree, every interview should be a performance, just like when you're out there, because we want the audience, of course, to hear this. And 
you know, they want, we want them to hear things that they don't normally get uh, by just maybe picking up a book or something like that. But Greg Kinn, American rock musician, radio personality, and novelist, and so much more. The Greg Kinn Band. Folks, a brand new album, Greg, the Greg Kinn Band, Rekindled. You can, of course, get yes, that. Yes, and you will be looking. Be looking for us to be touring in your city soon. Hey, that's where we want to get together with you when you do come here, let's say to Phoenix or a city close to us, and much more at Greg Kin. That's K-I-H-N dot com. Greg Kin, a fabulous guest. Thank you so much for being with us. That concludes this exciting edition of the Dr. Sky Show, where we get the best guests we can from the realms of astronomy, space, aviation, and weather, celebrity guests, and, of course, musical sensations and talents like you're hearing today. With Greg Ken. I'm sure Greg would always agree with me. Dr. Sky reminds everybody to always remember to keep their eyes to the skies. Thank you, Greg Ken. Oh, 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 oh,